Hey friends, hopefully you're doing great wherever you are today. Hopefully you're having a fantastic day no matter what you're doing. My name is Drew. And hey, thanks again for hitting play on the Praxis Church podcast. Maybe it's not again, maybe this is your first time actually hitting play. Well done. We're so excited that you're joining us today in our podcast. Uh, For others of you, you've been along for the ride as we've been in this series called From Redemption to Recycling. And in this series, we've just been looking at some of the most important questions right now in our moment. And it's been a lot of fun. We've had a great month or so engaging some things that oftentimes the church doesn't want to wrestle through and talk about. And we're just saying we want everything on the table. And so we've talked about things like hell and judgment, really exciting things, and social justice. We've talked about prayer and God's will. And then the last episode in our gathering, we took about a, well, we took one teaching on Sunday to talk about creation and evolution, which is great. And we've just been having a great time uh, wrestling through these things. And there's been so many thoughtful questions and uh, just even even dialogue amongst people. It's been really cool to hear. We have a Wednesday night community meal and just even hearing people wrestle through certain things that the teaching has provoked. This is what it's all about. It's really all about leading us into community and wrestling through the scriptures. And ultimately too, how does the church play in many of these things? You know, you have the Bible, which is ancient from thousands of years ago. And we're actually going to have a week on the Bible where we talk about where it came from and whatnot. But as well, the important part in all this is how the church plays and functions in the reality of some of these issues. So It's been good. Thanks for listening in. Now, on the weekend, it was Thanksgiving here in Canada. Uh, If you're American, yes, we have Thanksgiving about a month and a half earlier than you guys. And so the turkey was out. And on Thanksgiving, what we do, we've kind of got this new rhythm as a church. We don't have a Sunday morning gathering because we know lots of people love to travel on the long weekend, which is amazing. We don't want to fight that. And because we're in portable in a portable setting and in rented facilities, We don't have a gathering on Sunday morning, but what we started this year is something I think we'll do for a long time down the road, and that is on the Friday evening of Thanksgiving weekend, we had a massive long table, and it was phenomenal. It was like the best night ever. Sometimes, you know, it's easy for pastor people to kind of over-exaggerate, but honestly, Friday night was one of the highlights of our year, especially since launching Praxis. So we had a big long table, turkey dinner, people brought stuff, the environment was amazing, and as the sun set over the lake, yes, people, it was amazing. A lake in the background, the sun is setting, and just the atmosphere, music, and hanging out, and the kids were having a blast, and the table is really at the center of what we do. It's it's at the heart of who we want to be as a community, so it was pretty cool to practice this together and be together, and if anything, Thanksgiving should be, I think, uh, really a hallmark for Jesus followers. I know it's a cultural thing, but for us, just in our Thanksgiving to God for who he is, and as well for bringing us together as a community. So it was amazing. Anyways, um, with that said, we didn't have a teaching, and we had promised that we would release something as we continue to cultivate some of these discussions. And one of the things we're entering into in the month of October here is we are going to be talking about the gods of our day. And so uh, a guy named Richard Foster talks about the gods of our day being three primary things right now in our culture. One, power two, money, and three, sex. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about power, money, and sex and sexual formation. 
And so with that said, what we're going to do for a bit, and this is really like I've jotted some things down here. This isn't like a traditional sermon per se, but we're going to talk a little bit about power and what is power. Should we have power? How does the church steward power? But this one is not, the next few minutes are not just going to be on power, though that's amazing and very important. We'll talk about it. But we're also going to talk about politics because politics comes into play with this. Power and politics are obviously in our culture very much meshed together. Politics is a hot thing right now. And we are just about, in the Canadian context, we are just about a week away from the federal election. And I said that uh, to some American friends. I said, we're a couple, this was a week ago or whatever. I said, we're about a couple weeks away from our federal election. And they just looked at me like, what, we're American. What does federal mean? That means our national election, like for the top dog. So for you in the states, if you're, if I don't even know who listens to this, but you were voting for what would be your Donald Trump. And so, you know, there's a lot of question, questions around this. Um, Christians have approached this in many different ways, politics. And I'm just going to do my best to talk about power and politics over the next little while and try and give, a, I think, our a couple nuggets in how we approach even something like a federal national election. So let's talk about power. Let's talk about power. Andy Crouch says this in his book, Playing God. He says, power is a gift that has been diminished and destroyed by sin, but it is a gift nonetheless. Power is rooted in creation, the calling of something out of nothing. In other words, what I think Crouch is saying is, is that power is the ability to make something of the world. And he would go on to say that power is both better and it is worse than we could imagine. So even in the context of this, one of the things we need to think through is even the reality of the garden and the creation narrative and what it shows. Ultimately, it shows Yahweh with these proto-humans, with these image bearers. And ultimately, God entrusts them and gives them power. That the goal in the garden was that humans, humanity, would co-rule with God and make something of the world. And so oftentimes, and I, I can be like this, right? Because I look around the landscape right now of our world and the political landscape as well. And there's a lot of negative things that are attached to power. And I would think even in, in my mind, I would imagine probably even years that a lot of times power is seen as a negative thing, as it should because it's been distorted. But we have to remember that power is put in humans' hands. That in all, all, that all of us, in some respects, have levels of power. And I think what we're going to be confronted as we talk about this is how we steward that power. Because power, like in the garden, can lead to flourishing. You even see a dom in the garden naming the animals and cultivating and it starts good. And I do think that power can be stewarded well and it can lead to flourishing. I believe it's possible. That power is meant for image bearing and image bearing in the garden was meant for flourishing. And obviously, we don't live in the total reality of that right now in a broken world, a world that has kind of been bust apart at the seams by sin. But I I just think we need to think through power and, you know, the beauty of it and what God wanted to do in the beginning. And as well, obviously, now as it's flipped on its head, the the negative things that stem from power that's stewarded in um, 
in destructive ways. There's a great book by two guys named James Goggin and Kyle Strobel. Amazing book. I think everybody, if you have time, everybody should read it. It's just a little book called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb. And this particular book has really helped shape my mind around power. They say this. They say the way of power commended in scripture is not the way of power we have seen in evangelicalism. They go on, they say, we are called to be people of power, certainly, but ours is a kind of power antithetical to the power of this world. As painful of, uh, they go on, as painful as our experiences in the church may have been, we must avoid the temptation of viewing power itself as bad. From the moment of creation, God intended for people to have power. And wisdom is not essentially about making right decisions, but about living by the power of God in Christ Jesus. And so power is given, in, in even if you feel like you don't have a lot of power, power is given to all of us, and we're all confronted with how we will steward what God has given us. So in the scripture, in the New Testament, it seems like, especially to a guy like James, Jesus' brother, that there was two paths. There was the way from above, and the way from below. And James talks about this, that the way from below is the way of death. But the way from above is the way of life. Matthew 7 talks about this, that the way from above is the Jesus way. And so one of the things, obviously, you know, we have a Messiah, Jesus, who totally subverted the culture and the system of its day and came in self-sacrificial love, could have had all the power in the world, could have come in fleece diapers, God could have done whatever he wanted to do, could have come with the sword, fleece diapers, and power and royalty living in a palace, and obviously we know that the whole story is flipped on its head, that he comes in the lowliest of ways, and that actually our, our Messiah, for the most part, was homeless. You know, went from town to town as a teaching itinerant rabbi, teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God, and yet held no high social status, didn't hold a political position in the empire, and totally turned on its head what people thought now as the kingdom of God. So we have Jesus on display showing us that the way is self-sacrificial love, that in his power he laid his right of what often is known as cultural power down for the sake of others. Then you get to this guy named Paul, and we talk about Paul a ton because he wrote a large part of the New Testament and especially the letters, the pastoral epistles and these different letters to different communities in the ancient Mediterranean. And he opens his letter to this church in Corinth. And it's really crazy actually what he says. You got to remember in the backdrop is the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the way of peace was coming to the empire, but the way of peace was coming through politics and that politics led to power and that power led to violence. If you didn't buy in, if you were an adversary of the empire, you were probably at some point um, put to death, probably on a Roman cross. Rome and Caesar made it very clear who was in charge, who ruled, and they did it with a certain emphasis on power. Not only that, you mix in the first century, and I'm, you know, the last decade for me has been a learning around the first century. You have other kind of spheres at play. In the Greek world, you had sophistication. You had this group called the Sophists, which were literally people who would speak well, like they were orators. They would give compelling 
and beautiful speeches to people and culture. You've got to remember this is at the time uh, after, but you know, you have these guys in the Greek philosophy like Plato and Aristotle. And so wisdom and intellect, but not only that, how you would speak and communicate was very, very important in that culture. And it was actually praised. It was actually something that you could become very popular if you were a good orator and you could compel a crowd. And it would this would bust out of nowhere. You could be at a symposium at a dinner party and be asked to give a speech in, in the Roman Empire and in this kind of world. It was really important that if you were somebody who was sophisticated and intelligent that you were able to speak well. And Paul addresses this in his letter because he has people in the church in Corinth, which he's come to start and get going. Um, people in that church thought of Paul like, man, you, you're not that good of a speaker. You're not that, you know, when you, when you talk, it's not really great. But then they say of him that when you write, your words are weighty, like your theology and what, how you write is so sophisticated, but you're not very impressive when it comes to speech. And so there's this tension actually in the church in Corinth amongst other things, like one being a guy sleeping with his stepmom. That's in there. If you think the Bible's boring, just read it from cover to cover. I I always find people have all sorts of things about the Bible. And I ask them, have you read it? And most people haven't. And I would just encourage you to do that because there's all sorts of gnarly stuff going on, especially if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's interesting, in a culture in that time of sophistication and this group of sophists who brought wisdom through speaking and giving eloquent speeches, Paul comes And he just begins to talk about what this whole thing is about. If you follow Jesus, here's what it's all about. He says in verse 17 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, if you want to flip there, you'll see that Paul says this, I haven't come to you with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word wisdom here is Sophia in Greek, where we get sophists. And Paul is basically, no. he knows that these guys, that this is the way they roll. This is basically their profession. They're all around him. And he says, I haven't come with eloquent wisdom, sophistication, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, he basically compares and contrasts the words of eloquent wisdom and the word of the cross. And then if you think 17 is interesting in a culture that's, you know, built on intellect, wisdom, and sophistication, he says this, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly. Some of your texts, if you have it, different versions would say foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here, Paul is talking about the word of man versus the word of God. He's not comparing power and weakness per se. He's comparing power And foolishness for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This idea of the cross is utter foolishness. The word foolishness here is Mariah, where we get the word, if you just think, moronic, right? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying to those who are not really following in the way of Jesus, no wonder. This this is utter foolishness. This is moronic. This whole thing is foolishness. And so... When we think about the cross, we have to be reminded what it does to power. The cross subverts power as we know it in the first century culture and the culture that we live in today. And here's the thing with the cross. I want to talk about this for a minute because I think it's important. 
The problem today is we've sterilized the cross. We've sterilized it. We've made it clean and pretty. Actually, honestly, I was watching a YouTube video recently, and I'm not coming down on other people, but it's just, it's very interesting because in this particular auditorium where a worship service was going on, there was a cross in bright fluorescent lights. And I thought, oh man, how, how things have changed, how things have changed from the first century and what the cross actually meant. Because the cross was the most brutal form of execution known in the first century and maybe even in all of human history. Hundreds of Jewish rebels were hung on crosses, oftentimes coming into the major cities of the Roman Empire. There would be people hung on crosses at eye level so that you would just see and know who was in charge. And the Jewish community was also very much over time, if you didn't buy in and there were zealots and rebels that came came against the empire, oftentimes these people were put on crosses. I'll just let you know, the cross was not mutually exclusive to Jesus. Sometimes we pick up a Bible now and if you're new to it, and that's amazing, if you're new to this whole thing. But sometimes we pick up our Bibles and just think that the cross was a Jesus thing. The cross was a Roman Empire thing. And you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't even talk about things like crucifixion and the cross in a social setting. It was taboo. It was something you didn't talk about. But it was ultimately something that the empire used. Now think about what we've done to it, right? The cross, for a lot of people, is something you wear around your neck. Which... If you do that, that's amazing. But I think all of us just need to think through just what that's like. You know, I don't see too many people wearing a noose, like a gold noose around a necklace or an electric chair, right? And it's just interesting in that culture what that meant. And we very much sterilized this whole thing. And yet the cross was something that subverted the power of, of the day in the story of Jesus because he willingly gave up his life for all of humanity and it wasn't going to be powerful and it wasn't with bombs and bullets and it wasn't fighting back the way a lot of Jews thought it was going to be as far as creating an empire, a kingdom that would use force to go against Rome. It was laying his life down. And this life of cruciformity is actually the thing that we're called into And the majority of the time, it's stewarding power in a a way that is completely countercultural to our culture. That's why they call it countercultural, I think. So we just need to think of power and how this all works with the cross and the Bible because power is so much different than what we see around us. Elizabeth Elliot says this. She says, to be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. The great symbol of Christianity means sacrifice and no one who calls himself a Christian can evade this stark fact. Or what about N.T. Wright? He puts it like this. When we speak of following Christ, it is the crucified Messiah we are talking about. His death was not simply the messy bit that enables our sins to be forgiven, but that can then be forgotten. The cross is is the surest, truest, and deepest window into the very heart and character of the living and loving God. The more we learn about the cross in all its historical and theological dimensions, the more we discover about the one in whose image we are made and hence about our own vocation to be the cross-bearing people, the people in whose whose lives and service the living God is made known. And so Paul, 
talks about how this idea of the cross is utter foolishness to the culture of the day and to those who are perishing, to those who don't follow the way of Jesus. So verse 18, you know, he talks about folly to those who are perishing, but the power, this idea of the message of the cross is power to those who are being saved. Basically, he's saying that the message of the cross is moronic to those who, who are in the process and walking in the way of Jesus, but it's perishing to those who are not. As Anthony Thistleton would say, folly brings self-destruction. He's also saying, Paul here is saying that the message of the cross is power to those who are being saved, but it's a different kind of power, right? So then he goes on, verse 22, and he talks about how this idea, this whole upside down message, of power, the cross, how Jesus is bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven is a stumbling block and its foolishness. So he says this verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greek, Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So remember, if you know these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, Jews, just read the Old Testament, are always looking for freaking signs. They want signs. Greeks, again, you have the Sophists and Hellenism and Alexander the Great. They thrive on wisdom. And Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews, to the Jews. A crucified Messiah, not somebody coming, reigning the the way they thought, was an utter, absolute scandal. It was a stumbling block. It was, Paul knew it, it was a trap. This was not the way in which they thought this was going to happen. And to the Greeks, it was foolishness. It was moronic. To the Gentiles in Corinth, this idea of God coming and giving himself and dying on a Roman cross would have been utter foolishness. And I know we're sleepy Canadians, you know, thinking about the hockey game tonight or whatever. And we may not be in that particular culture, but I'm just, I just think it's important to talk about the reality that power, power is so different in the way of Jesus. It's not that we don't have power, people who follow Jesus. And it's not that God didn't, it's not that God doesn't hold all power and authority. It's just the way in which, is, which he uses that power and authority. And now his, his followers, the way in which they use it is so, so different. The irony here is that Paul says he didn't, you know, in the text, he says he didn't come with words of wisdom. But if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, he writes some of the best Greek rhetoric you could write in that day. So he was using sophistication to basically say that it's not, listen, he didn't come with words of wisdom. It's this simple message of a crucified Messiah where God now reigns in Jesus through death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 27, he goes on. This is, again, 1 Corinthians 1. We're almost to the end. I'll I'll want to show how this all kind of connects together. Verse 27, he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What does he mean here? Well, it's interesting in this particular culture, Greco-Roman culture was an honor-shame society. And now he's saying things like, that things like foolishness, he's using the foolish to shame the wise. He's using the weak to shame the strong. So this would have resounded in their particular moment. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, right? 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul's saying, listen, the foolish things are shaming the wise. The weak things, this weak, what often seems as a weak message, shames the strong. And the reality is, is that, and the beauty of this is that nobody can boast in this message of saving themselves or being strong and powerful and mighty. Got to remember, Paul was a pretty mighty dude in the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was an understudy of Gamaliel, one of the most important, probably, rabbis ever to live in Judaism. And he's saying, it's as simple as this. God laid his life down and the cross has power, but it's so different than you think or see in your moment. So the message of power here is actually a message in human terms that shows weakness, self-sacrifice in the way of the cross. And this message is a stumbling block. Now, we're not a stumbling block. We shouldn't be. But the me- we have to grapple with the reality that in our moment and in our time, this whole idea of the cross, I know it's, it may be a little separated from the ancient world, but it's so different than what anybody was expecting. And this is how God works. He subverts power and he brings his reign in a way that nobody thought it would come. So the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who have not bought in, to those who have not given their allegiance to Jesus. This is just like, it's weak. And we go, yeah, but that's how God works. That's how God's strength is made manifest in our weakness, right? This is kind of, as Jesus followers, this is what we're signing up for. It's very, very upside down. And we have power and politics all around us, but we have to wrestle with this core message that Jesus the Messiah and then Paul years later picking up on his life show a completely different way. Now here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Can we have a moment to be honest? I don't know about you, but I want to be powerful. I kind of just, I'm just going to be, I'm going to put out there like, and I think probably you are too. I think most of us want to be powerful. And there are moments in my life where I want to be powerful Uh, on the Enneagram, which is like a personality theory. I'm a three on the Enneagram, which is an achiever. And when threes are unhealthy, um, they can abuse power. It's been something beautiful. Like that self-awareness has been so beautiful for me because I've seen in my own life that it's easy to clamor to the way of power, to the way from below, as James would talk about, instead of the beautiful way of Jesus, which is the way from above, serving others and giving your life for others. And so power is in front of all of us and we have to grapple with it as individuals. But I'll also say this, more and more, even as Paul is talking about the foolishness of this message, the folly, the the moronicness of this message and how crazy it is, I often begin to think about the church in power. We are living in a very interesting moment right now when it comes to power in the church. And I've just been wrestling through some things because as I look around, um, there's some beautiful things happening in the church in Canada and the North American context. But I have, and I think all of us have seen at times that in the West, it has been easy for the church to clamor to worldly power. And what does it look like to be faithful to this Jesus, this Messiah, and not necessarily buy in to the way of the world because that can even slip into the church. 
in in this little book, The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, they say, in a culture drunk on power and in need of an intervention, the church has too often become an enabler. In many places, churches openly affirm the way from below. Instead of being told how desperately I am in need of God, I am repeatedly told how much God needs me. They're not true. There's a bit of a... I think that is true. That the tune can often be, in our cultural moment, how much God needs me, instead of the way from above that shows how dependent and in need and how weak I am and in need of a loving God. Marva Dawn puts it like this. She says, many evil powers are tempting the church today. Number one is the power of personality. I call that an evil power because many pastors, and you know, you're, most of you aren't pastors and I am, so I'll, I'll listen to this one. Many pastors depend on their own personality to attract people. It's an evil power that pits personality against the force of the gospel in Jesus Christ alone. And so as we talk about power, you have these individual things that we can be coerced into when it comes to ungodly, unstewarded power. But I think the church also has to look deep in its soul at this moment and think about how we use our own power. So here's something. Here's here's an example. I've been just thinking through even things like church marketing and advertising. And listen, we've all done we've done this as practice and as a community at times. But you know, as I as I wrestle through power and what we're trying to become, you know, I've just been thinking through and you know, just in my own heart and for our own community that we be careful not to try and market something or sell something, especially trying to sell a church, right? To me, that's the way from below. We have to be very, very careful. And even the way we talk about our churches is very important. And here's the thing. You love your church? That's amazing. I love my church too. But we can often use rhetoric and language about our church being the best and powerful and what we do and what we've got going on that it can be the way from below. And so those are just little areas where I look around and I'm, I'm thinking about our own community and how we steward this well, how we be this community that God's called together to grow and to flourish and yet at the same time not use the way from below and, and, and critique how we actually steward what we have. And are we trying to be powerful in a worldly sense are we actually drawn into the way of Jesus? Because ultimately we are called as a community to be a voice of the voiceless. This is what it means to steward our power. But are we using our power the way the world does, trying to be the next best thing and trying to, whatever, you know, be the, be the, be the next best thing. Is that what we're trying to do? We all need to look deep into our soul personally, but also say that the church needs to do an evaluation of how we steward our influence and our power. And you know, there's different dynamics, uh, even culturally and politically and around the world. I think of power dynamics and poverty. You know, I even heard somebody say this week, man, there's there's so much like food equity here in the West. And, you know, why, why can't we share more and end some of the world hunger issues around the world? And those issues are very, very real. And I'm, we're actually quite passionate as a church and our family is quite passionate about these things. Um, the issue is people would say, Hey, we have more than enough food, but oftentimes people don't understand the power that happens to push communities and people into poverty and into starvation. It's more than just having food. There's power dynamics at play. 
It's one people, as Andy, Andy Crouch would say, playing God over another that gets people caught in these cycles. It's not necessarily necessarily a resource thing all the time. It's a power thing in how one group can treat another. And so we need to look at power again and how we steward that in the best sense as the church and as individuals in the way of Jesus. And obviously we look around and that, that's just one example there, you know, with food shortage in certain countries and communities around the world that show you that power from the fall of humans has been abused. And we look at our political, you know, moment right now around the world and there are lots of questions that come with it. So let's move from power, though we're not going to stop talking about power, but let's talk a little bit about politics because there are always tons of questions around politics. And here's the thing. I don't have all the answers. I just don't have all the answers with this. But let's talk about politics. I want us to think through a couple things. And these are probably redundant a little because we've been saying this these things a lot uh, in this series when it comes to salvation in the kingdom of God. Can I just say this? Salvation is political. Salvation in the day of Jesus and what Jesus was coming to establish was political. So a lot of people will say, well, gee, you know, we we shouldn't talk about politics at all. And I get that because um, probably what you mean is partisan politics. And we don't affirm a particular party. We, ne- we really never talk about this in our church. But the other side is salvation was political. And the kingdom of God was political. Okay? Salvation was political because there was somebody else at the time of Jesus who saved. And you've heard this again. This is redundant if you've been listening along. And his name was Caesar. So when you come along and say that there's another king that brings salvation, those are weighty words, man, because that's all of a sudden that's political. It's not right and left politics as we know it. But in the first century, the way of Jesus was a major confrontation with the empire and Caesar who held power in that empire. So salvation was political. Do not be, like when we talk and you hear somebody say, well, we shouldn't talk about politics. I would always lean in and ask, what do you mean by that? Because salvation was political. The kingdom of God was political. So what Jesus was coming to establish, bringing his kingdom rule to earth as it is in heaven, was political. And it was political because there was another guy who had his kingdom and had his rule and had his reign. And Jesus' kingdom pushes against that. So listen very closely, okay? Oftentimes, and I know in our context, at least in our church, we try to avoid at times talking about politics, but here's the thing. Jesus was political. What? What? No, we come on. Listen, Jesus was political. It's just not the way that we think about it. So we think left and right politics. We think about going to the voting booth. We think about, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But Jesus had a vision and has a vision for this world and what it means to be human. He has a particular worldview. And Jesus was political. The kingdom of God was political. And salvation was political. And that's how it should be read when we pick up our New Testament. Jesus was political. It's just not the way you think. Not left and right, not partisan politics, but he very much had a vision for the world, a worldview, and Jesus had a politic. Again, different than what we think. 
So what comes up then is the question, and here we are just, you know, a week away or whatever from uh, voting. And a lot of times people ask the question, should people who follow Jesus vote? And I know that we have a long litany in history of God's people being, and here's the thing, God, some of God's people like us being in a democracy where we have a vote. There's other friends and brothers and sisters around the world that don't have that particular vote. And our brothers and sisters in the first century didn't have any rights or particular vote when it came to the political climate of the day because, again, it was more of a rule and reign that was, for the most part, forced on you than it was a democracy. So, These questions fit into different cultures throughout the earth, and here we are, here I sit, sipping nice coffee, talking into a microphone, trying to cultivate ideas and theology in our community, and I have a vote. It's It's amazing. So should Christians vote? I'm, and again, the line of history within the church, people have looked at this in different ways. I think of our Anabaptist brothers and sisters and more Mennonite brothers and sisters who have um, not necessarily taken that right and haven't vo- voted and haven't exercised that right. And I know that's simplifying things. There's a whole, his- you know, you start reading and there's a whole history there. But I would be under the assumption that Jesus followers can vote. And I just want to share a-, a few things from that assumption that we must remember. So I think, obviously, Jesus followers in in this particular moment, when we're talking about Canada and the West, absolutely, I think we can, and probably in many ways should vote. Um, again, that could be argued. But I want us to, re- I think the, the key thing is we should remember a few things. And I'll say it again here. Some of you are going to want partisan politics here, and you're just going to be greatly disappointed because I don't hold to a political party. And obviously, as a community, we probably, I would imagine, have people on all sorts of the aisles. And I say aisles because we're not a two-party system in Canada, um, which I think is probably pretty good um, and, and a little more healthy than some of the rhetoric we get from our friends in the South. But that's another podcast for some other person. But I do think we need to remember a few things when it comes to voting for particular political uh, parties and ideas in our moment here uh, in Canada. Let me share a few of them and then we'll be done, all right? So think about this. Uh, Certainly we can exercise the right to vote, but here's what all of us need to know. First, a new leader is not going to save us. A new leader or the same leader, wherever you land, is not going to save us again if you want left and right politics you're just gonna you might even want to shut it off because there's none of that here i'll just say this we tend to put messianic expectations on people we we tend to put messianic expectations on people and here's the reality the the savior and the messiah and the king has already come but we put these like King, we put expectations on people that a political leader is going to save the day. And the tension with those of us that follow Jesus is we lean in and go, that's just not not true. It's so funny. I remember 
whatever day it was in January 2009, uh, Barack Obama, oh, sorry, 2008, sorry. It was in November 2008. I apologize, November 2008. And that infamous night, Barack Obama, who I like, by the way, I really like that guy. Uh, That's not really political at all. I just like the guy as a person. Um, He won uh, for the Democrats in the United States, and it was an amazing night, and the cameras are out, and he comes out with his vice president, and Oprah is there crying, and Jesse Jackson, and it's just tears welling down and it was it was an amazing moment the first african-american president in united states history and the progress and just some really beautiful brilliant things and this moment with the speech and remember the titans theme in the background and here i am i'm almost crying because i just love remember the titans is like one of my top five movies of all time and just this incredible incredible moment and then within a couple years i remember getting a push to my phone from cnn saying that barack obama had some of at that point had some of the lowest uh what what do we call it? some of the lowest approval rates uh of any president at that point ever in human history in the in the history of the United States and it was just interesting to see the 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 messianic kind of expectation put on him and then the reality and the reality is for those of us that are in the way of Jesus no human can solve our problems no human can solve our problems. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, politics don't, and good policy don't play into to certain things. And voting for good policy, I think, is, is smart. That's great. But no human can solve our problems. And no human can solve the problem of the human heart. And we just got to keep that before us. We just have to remember that a new leader is not going to save us. And leaders in our context are not going to save us. But two, I'll say this. I'll say this, policies and ideas are important in our moment, but I would just encourage all of us to be careful of expecting the kingdom of God without the king. So policies, ideas, all we all need to think through this. If you're going to vote, we all need to think through all of this, especially as people who follow Jesus. But I would just really encourage us to be careful of expecting the kingdom of God to come without the king. This is what we're living in right now. Everybody wants the utopia of the kingdom. We want justice and righteousness. We want, for most people, they want equality uh, and, and, you know, just a good and free society in many ways. And so humans long for the kingdom of God and we long for just society and all this, but we want to do it apart from Jesus. This is not, listen, this will not be established. This idea and mindset will not be established without the rule and the reign of the good king. And so we need to think through policy and and I've already said it a few times. We need to think through these things and wrestle through what could lead to a good and faithful and just society, but it's not going to happen without King Jesus. A new leader is not going to save us and we have to be careful to buy into kind of the secular narrative right now that we want the kingdom, the utopia, without the good king. The reality is that current governments around the world, as good or as bad as they are, are temporary and were not God's original plan for dominion and rule on the planet. As Jesus followers, we are these crazy ones, and we got to keep this before us at this time of year, that believe God is bringing his kingdom to earth and that someday Jesus will rule justly in every corner of the freaking earth. So in a week from now, if you're unhappy or discontent or you're aggravated with the recent election, this come upcoming election results, just remember that no government is perfect. We're all broken. 
We all need to be fixed. Remember, and this is where theology comes into play in narrative theology. Remember that the original plan in the beginning was for democracy, for democracy and democracy or wasn't sorry. The original plan was not democracy. Sorry. The original plan was not democracy. Democracy will be fixed when Jesus brings heaven to earth. It was all about theocracy. If in a, in a couple of weeks from now, you're happy and you're overjoyed with the recent election results. Remember that this is just temporary. That God's redemptive plan is unfolding and someday there will be no political parties. Someday we're these crazy people that believe we will rest under the full reign of Jesus where brokenness and injustice will be restored and everything will be made new. And I just say this, in the meantime, no matter where we stand or what party or what which way you're leaning on certain issues or what we subscribe to that we're, we are all called to pray in this moment. We're called to pray for broken humans who have been entrusted by us Canadians in the U S or whatever Americans to lead as effectively as they can. So we live in the tension that we pray and we do good in our neighborhoods and communities, but the Jesus followers are the ones that are eagerly awaiting his return as king. And I know like in, I know in Revelation, there's a little bit of jargon where it seems like the writer is throwing down on Babylon, which would be Rome and the beast, which would be Caesar. And I get that. But I also think we got to watch ourselves, watch our rhetoric uh, about our leaders, whether that's messianic expectations or just always being critical. I think we got to be careful as that as well, because we're just these people that live in the reality that Jesus is the true King. He's the one that saves. I know this is like, this is the thing we've been speaking over in social justice. We talk about it, salvation kingdom. This always comes back to the reality that Jesus is the good King. And we just eagerly await his return. And none of this will satisfy our longings. Just as in 2008, a lot of people thought their longings were satisfied by a new leader. We all realize that Nobody fulfills these expectations. So I don't know where you land on that, but I just think it's important to have those expectations in our heart and in our minds that what will happen in a week from now or whatever is not going to solve all of our problems. Three, I'll say this. So those points again, just to refresh. One, a new leader is not going to save us. Two, policies and ideas are important, but be careful of expecting the kingdom without the king. And then I'll just say this. We need to work for unity. No matter which candidate, which party you vote for, we need to work for unity. This is what, ultimately, this is what we need. We need humility. And as Jesus followers, I just hope we walk humbly with the reality that Jesus is the good king. Nobody's going to satisfy these longings outside of him. But then also we just work for unity. I've been reading a little bit of a guy named Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, I think is his name. Uh, He wrote a book, a great book called The Righteous Mind. And another little portion out of that book, he just created, I think in an an e-book last year called Why They Vote This Way. And I've just been trying to listen to Jonathan Haidt's um, research and just be humble about this because, uh, again, I'm not really locked in too much to our political situation here in Canada. I think I'm informed. Some people are into politics uh, way, way more. And I'm just trying to walk this humbly. 
But Jonathan Haidt notes in this little book, he says that people, and I'm just trying to come to somewhat of an understanding to help understand others in unity. He says this, that people typically make moral judgments quickly. He would actually argue that people make moral judgments almost immediately. So we then make up reason, but then he would say, we then make up reason slowly in order to justify our initial intuitive judgment. And so he would say, this is why moral and political arguments can be so frustrating. The people you are arguing with put out a reason in support of their side. You utterly refute that reason. And yet they they never say things like, oh, you know what? You're right. They just move on and just make up another reason. Haidt would say that the reasoning was an after effect of the judgment. It was not the cause or basis of the judgment. So he gives this example. I hope, I know it's, you know, stick with me. He says this, he gives a little example of the rider, of a rider and an elephant. He goes on to say, a person's mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict like a small rider on top of a very large elephant. So if you see a rider on an elephant, kind of the picture. The small rider is the reasoning, is the controlled processing. That's what, Height would say. But he'd also say that the very large elephant is the automatic processing, the gut feeling or the intuition. So the elephant is the intuition. The small rider is on top is the reasoning. Now, Height would say each of us may think the rider on top is in charge. We think we come to our views by carefully weighing the evidence on all sides. Yet when we argue with others, it often seems clear to us that their elephant is in charge. And he would go on and say that the key to understanding politics and partisanship and voting is to understand the elephant. It is very hard to change someone's mind by hitting them with arguments, logic, and data if their elephant or their intuition doesn't like you or what you stand for. So I would say this, intuitions come first and reasoning comes second for all of us. Intuition tends to come first, reasoning comes second. And I hope this gives us a little bit of empathy for each each other and understanding each other. So to be socially or politically influential, one of the things you have to do is you have to understand and acknowledge people's values. So in this research, what Height did with a few other coworkers is they created a moral foundations theory. And in this kind of revised moral foundations theory, there were six particular foundations. There was care on the scale, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and then they added this sixth category, liberty. And it was just interesting, in their research, those who considered themselves liberal endorsed things like care and fairness, while those who identified more as conservative endorsed things like loyalty and authority, sanctity, and of course, liberty. And it's the same thing when the same people were pulled. It was actually the same thing with people and what they found relevant. People who leaned more left found things like care and fairness relevant. Well, conservative people tended to find things relevant like loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty. And it's just interesting in all of this, as I and you can read it, and maybe this doesn't fully land or make sense, but as I'm just researching and, and reading through this, 
I thought how important it is because oftentimes we are gut people and intuition people that we've got to work to understand the other side. We actually have to work to understand from those who differ from you. And you also have to understand these moral foundations which our intuition is often drawn towards. And I just just think the big thing in all of this, no matter where you land, is that we just be people that would listen to each other. I think Jesus followers need to be marked as people who listen. A lot of times it's very it's very easy to be quick to speak, but may we be people that are quick to listen because again we haven't in our perspective here that um, this isn't going to change. I mean, the changes can be made, but this isn't going to fully change the longing of the human heart for everything to be made right. Only Jesus can do that. And you may listen to this and go, that's so narrow. And maybe for you, it's like, "Ah, that's old school. That's what I heard in the past in the church. But I think one of the things in and through this is we lean in and hang on to the reality that Jesus is king. And so just be reminded in this whole idea of an election and politics and how this all plays, a new leader is not going to save us. We got to be careful about expecting the kingdom of God without the king. And we got to work for unity. No matter where you land, let's be people that work for unity. And I just think as Jesus followers, this is this is our our, our frame. This is our frame is that Jesus is coming to renew all things. And so there's urgency in the sense of like working for justice and righteousness now, absolutely, but also understanding we can't do it on our own. And so power and politics, power and politics, I'd say hot topics right now. My prayer is, is that as people, we would steward power well, the power that God has given us and given you. And in this political moment, we would trust Jesus with everything and use wisdom but at the same time, the message that we hold on to, the message of the cross, is foolishness. It's, it's, it's folly. And yet this is the message we hang on to. A message that maybe culturally looks weak, but we know that in and through this message, this is how true power is manifested. By God who loves us and in his power gave of himself for us. How It's, just, it's totally upside down. And I think being a Jesus follower is entering into this way, this upside down kingdom, this upside down way of living in the moment in which we live. That's my best friends. I'm not super political. I am on a journey, I think like most of us, Um, but these are a few things that have just been rolling around in my head. How do I steward power well? And how do I steward this political moment well as a citizen in the kingdom of God and, and in a country like Canada? How do we do this? We're looking forward to the future and some of the things that we're going to be talking about. This Sunday, we actually, if you could join us, we have an amazing panel of people that are going to come and they are going to share with us around finances. And it's going to be super nuts and bolts, super practical. We actually have a few financial planners in our community that are going to come and share about things like saving and debt and the future. One thing we wanted to do is talk really nuts and bolts about money. And then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about more of the theological framework around money. We're going to talk about generosity. We have a great teaching we're going to share. And then we're also going to answer the question in one of our podcasts next week. Should you tithe? Because this question comes up all the time. People hear the word tithe in the Bible. Is that something I need to do? We're going to wrestle through that and see what the scriptures say. Other than that, friends, have an amazing week and uh, just go in the grace and peace of Jesus and uh, may Jesus just be with you in everything you do this week. Talk soon.